0: We are going through the book of Acts, and today we're going to look at chapters 14 and chapter 15. So in chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas, they're out preaching the gospel, and they're doing all sorts of miracles, and they're healing people. Thank you, Joe. And the pagans, when they see them healing people, they don't give glory to God. They think they are the gods. And because Barnabas was doing most of the talking, they figured he's Hermes, or vice versa, no, Paul's Hermes, and they figured Barnabas must be Zeus. And so now they're ready to offer a sacrifice (laughs) to Paul and Barnabas. And they're beside themselves. No, we're just people, don't do that, don't do that. And they share the gospel with them. And the scripture says they could barely contain the people from offering them sacrifice. So, Paul and Barnabas were in a previous city right before this. Some of the troublemakers from that city showed up right around this time. And they start speaking poorly about Paul and Barnabas. And this crowd that was just about ready to worship them as gods turned around and stoned Paul to death. How fickle can people be, huh? From worshiping to hating and just like split second. And scripture says this After the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city. Paul, man, what a man, a God. Okay, you're visiting a city. They stone you there. You get up, you go back into the city. I'm out of here. First slide out of town, I'm gone. They don't like me. I don't like them. Not Paul. He says, I'm not done. Back into the city he goes. This man never cared or feared for his life, even though at times it was taken from him or threatened to be taken from him. Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, they said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. I'll guarantee you, on popular TV and popular books, not a lot of sermons on that verse. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. No, what the popular preachers like to tell us is, if you just have enough faith you'll be wealthy, and if you just have enough faith, you'll be healthy, and if things go wrong in your life, it's because there's sin in your life, and you need to repent of it and increase your faith. That's not what the scriptures teach. Yes, sin can cause trouble too, but if that was true, then the biggest sinner must have been Jesus, because look at all the trouble he went through. And you know he wasn't a sinner. He was the perfect son of God. And he suffered miserably. And what about all the prophets? God does not always protect his people from harm. Stephen was stoned. Many of the prophets were killed. Jesus himself was killed. No, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. A couple weeks ago, somebody shared with me a Facebook post about this woman, woman in the Sudan who was going to be executed for her faith. And a whole bunch of people all over Facebook and other places just started posting about it and sending letters and signing petitions. And we signed petitions and found out yesterday she's being released. Yeah, it's great news. Maybe we in the United States don't really appreciate this verse. But in most of history and in most of the world, they understand we must, through many hardships, enter the kingdom of God. Paul put it this way when he wrote to Pastor Timothy. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Moses was persecuted. You know, after he took us out of Egypt, people wanted to go back and they threatened to kill him. They wanted to kill him. We'll be talking about that in a couple weeks, I think. John the Baptist was persecuted. He was killed. Jesus was killed. Stephen was killed. James was killed. Jesus said, I've told you the, these things, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, we're going to have trouble in this world. The apostles had trouble in this world. That's chapter 14, and it was pretty cool how Paul just got stoned, got up, and went right back to work. <laughs> what a man. Chapter 14, that is. 15 now, the Jerusalem Council. So, chapter 15, some men came from Judea to Antioch and started teaching the believers you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised as the law of Moses requires. So Paul and Barnabas got into a fierce argument with them about this. So it was decided that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others in Antioch should go to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this matter. So here's what happened wasn't that long ago that the Apostle Peter was raised up to bring the message of the Jewish Messiah to the non-Jewish people. After that worked, and it worked well, God raised up Paul to take it beyond Judea, to take it to the nations. So Paul, Barnabas, and his entourage are traveling all over the Roman Empire telling people about Jesus, and all these non-Jews are coming into the faith by the tens of thousands. Well, a group of Jews from Judea Start following him around, in a sense, and saying, wait a minute, you guys got it wrong. It's not just enough that you believe in the Jewish Messiah, you got to become Jews. you got to be circumcised, follow all the laws. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not right. And So they got into this big fight. And now the church is confused. We don't know right from wrong. What do we do? Listen, Paul, please, go talk to the other apostles. Bring all the pastors together. Settle this for us. Let us know. We don't know which way is right. So Paul and Barnabas, a bunch of leaders, they had this huge conclave in Jerusalem to talk this thing through. So they get there to answer the question, do the Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus, to be saved? And they fight about it. See, a lot of the believers were Pharisees. Now, you don't hear that about the Pharisees that much. You always think, oh, they're the bad guys. There was a huge following of Pharisees, of Jesus followers, But they still wanted to keep their traditions and require everybody else to do the same. And so they fought, they argued. Then Peter stood up and said, okay, everybody said their piece, now let me tell you my piece. He said, you know, God used me to bring the message to the Gentiles. And when I brought it to them, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like he did us, and God said, there's no difference between them and us. And James stood up, and he was the leader, even over Peter at this point. He was the man in charge. He was the leader of the church. All of them. He was the head man. You know, obviously he wasn't in charge of each local church, but he was considered the number one apostle over all church affairs. He stands up and he says, okay, this is what happened. And he summarizes. And then they write a letter and send it off to the churches. Here's the summary, by the way. Here's what he says. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles returning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from these four things. Food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So the letters go out to all these people who are confused. They rejoice, they're excited, and there's peace back in the body of Christ. Chapter 15 is extremely important. It settled a major controversy in the ancient church, which is still a controversy in the church today, which is kind of sad. So we're going to look at chapter 15 with a little more depth and learn some lessons from it. The first lesson is one most people know who follow Jesus. The first lesson we learn from Acts chapter 15 is that keeping God's commandments doesn't save us from our sin. Only Jesus saves us from our sin. Verses 9 through 11 put it this way. God made no distinction between us and them, between Jews and Gentiles. This is Peter's piece. For he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. We are saved by grace. What is grace? You've seen the acrostic. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is when we get something we do not deserve. You can't work for your salvation. It can be given to you as a gift from God. We learn that from Acts 15. You see, there were some people who thought, you know, if you can just follow enough rules in the Bible, then you will become good enough to get into heaven. That is untrue. We can never become good enough to get into heaven. We need a Savior. And that's something that they settled in Acts chapter 15. Paul summarizes it beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. And then he goes on to saying, but we are created to do good works. So good works are part of what, that's what we're here for. But doing those won't get you saved. Good works are the fruit of our walk, not the source of our walk with God. So, lessons we can learn from Acts 15. The first one, probably the most important one, is keeping God's law doesn't save us. Faith in Jesus saves us. The second lesson from Acts 15 is Gentiles, that is non-Jews, were specifically told they are not required to keep the laws of Moses. They're not required to keep all of the Torah. Acts 15 Then some of the followers who believed, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey all the laws of Moses. And the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel, and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us. He made no distinction between them and us. He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. Peter said, I preached the gospel to them. The Holy Spirit fell on them. They got saved. Why are you trying to muddy the waters now? If God wanted something further from them, it would have happened then. He took them as they were. Don't try to change them. That was Peter. Then uh, James gets up, and he summarizes the decision of the Jerusalem council. And here's what he says. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So they wrote a letter, it was signed, and some notable people carried it. You know, I like to watch this show, Antiques Roadshow. It's an awesome, I love it. And I like the art parts the best. One of the, how do you know if art's original or if it's you know, a phony? Because a piece of art could be worth a million dollars, so people are gonna fake it. And there's certain things they do to determine. One of the first things they do is they look at the, the signature to see if it looks like known signatures of the artist. If the signature doesn't look the same, it's a a fake. But sometimes they fake the signature. So they want something called provenance. That means we want the history of this piece. We need to prove that it actually came from the artist. And if you can give me the history of this piece, that proves, and it's worth a million dollars. But if you can't, we don't even want it. And it may be real. But if you can't prove it's real, we don't want it. So for Provenance, yeah, he signed it, but then notable people who are respected and there carried it from church to church so that nobody could doubt this was official. So they sent the letter, and here's part of what the letter said. It's in chapter 15. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now, there's a lot of confusion as to why those four things are mentioned. But there's one thing that all those four have in common, pagan worship. So it seems to be that if you avoid these four things, you will be avoiding pagan worship, and you'll be fine. So the first thing we learn from the Jerusalem Council is that salvation comes by grace, not obedience to the Torah, the laws of Moses. The second thing we learn from the Jerusalem Council is that Gentiles are not required to take on the full yoke of the Torah. But is there any part of the Torah that's active today? Absolutely. So what place does the Torah play in the lives of us today? And I say us, Jews and Gentiles, but Gentiles in particular. What role does it play? There's no simple answer to that question. In preparing for this message, because I knew it was coming, I decided to do a little more reading. This book is called Continuity and Discontinuity, Perspectives on the Relationship Between the Old and New Testament. Talk about dry reading. (laughs) This one was hard to get through. It's several different, well-respected authors writing on all the theological topics that relate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Chapter 1, historical perspective. Chapter 2, theological systems and the testaments. Chapter 3, hermeneutics and the testaments. Chapter 4, salvation and the testaments, okay? Comparing the Old and the New Testament. That was hard. That was rough going. But I got through it. I read this one called Five Views on the Law and Gospel. Same idea as this. Much easier to read. From very well respected theologians from various schools of thought Greg Banson, Walter Kaiser Jr., Douglas Moo, Wayne Strickland, William A. Van Gemeren. Each theologian wrote an article on their position on how the Old Testament and New Testament relate for Christians today. And then the other authors critiqued their article. And then he responded to the critiques. And then the next author did the same. You know what I learned? None of them agree with each other. They all make good points and they all do well critiquing their points. Then I read this one. god fears Gentiles and the God of Israel. This one I could hardly put down. This one I could hardly pick up. This one so-so. This one I could hardly put down. And I read through that, and I said, yeah, this is cool. I agree with some of it. I don't agree with all of it, but it raised some very good points. And the end result in answering the question, what place does the Torah have in our lives today? Here's my answer. There's no simple answer. I can't give you a sentence to answer that question. I can give you a sentence that gets you close to the answer to that question. But the problem is, it's only close. It's not accurate. It's good enough for basic conversation. But if you really want to know the answer to that question, do what I did. Read these three books and then get thoroughly confused. <laughs> Let me talk to you about things I think all of these people agree on. Okay? So I told you they, they disagreed on a lot, but they agreed over certain things. There are part... Here's the first agreement... There are parts of the Torah, the Old Testament, that are no longer active or binding on the believer today. They all agree with that statement. They disagree over what those parts are. But they all agree over some of those parts. For example, the Levitical system. God gave the Torah to Moses at Mount Sinai. In fact, let me uh, draw Mount Sinai. Really? Really? Jose, would you do me a favor and throw that away? Thanks. I will now draw Mount Sinai. (laughs) Hopefully not in invisible ink. Yay! Okay, so I'm not an artist. (laughs) Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and God gives him the covenant, the law of Moses. Remember, he got the Ten Commandments, he went down, And then he went back up for 40 days and received the rest of the law. When he went up, the children of Israel said, you know what, we don't want to hear God speaking from the mountain anymore. It's too scary. You go up and get the rest. Whatever he says, we'll do it. Just don't make us listen to God anymore. We're going to die. So Moses goes up there for like 40 days and gets the rest of the Torah. A big portion of the Torah of the covenant that God made, of the law of Moses, is the Levitical system. That's everything about sacrifices and the temple. And you say, oh, Steve, we're not under that stuff anymore. Well, of course we're not. Everybody agrees with that part. But what you need to understand is it was a huge part of the Torah. Significant, not just huge in space, but huge in significance. In fact, so significant that you had asked any rabbi, if you take the Levitical system out of the Torah, what do you have left? And they would have said nothing. There is no Torah. There is no Judaism. There is no relationship with God. That is the heart, the soul, the meat. That's the whole kit and caboodle. Take that out and there's nothing. So when I tell you that they all agree that that part's gone, I want you to understand how significant a statement it is. That is huge. In the Talmud, it says this. Shimon, the righteous, was among the last surviving members of the great assembly. He would say, the world stands on three things. Torah, the service of God, and deeds of kindness. Service of God, that's the temple service, the sacrificial system. So according to this great rabbi, one of the great ones at this time, he said, the whole world stands on three pillars. Doing good things, the sacrificial system, and the rest of the Torah. Well, we just took out one of those pillars. The whole world should be collapsing. But it wasn't just like it was taken out. It was replaced by something better. On the bayou, they built their houses up on stilts so that if a hurricane comes through and all this like 20 foot of water wall comes through, it just goes under their house instead of taking their house away. But they learned that putting them up on wood sticks may not be the best way to go because, you know, it rots, and it's not that strong. So now the builders are starting to do them on, like, concrete pilings. These houses are, like, indestructible. So in a sense, it's like the the wood was taken out to be replaced by something better. The Levitical system was removed not to leave a hole there, but to be replaced by a better pillar. Hebrews 10.1, the Torah, the law, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this very reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. It says it was a good system, but it was imperfect, didn't work, because they had to keep doing the sacrifices year after year after year. We needed something more permanent. We didn't want to keep replacing the wood pilings. We need something permanent. The Levitical priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what's in heaven. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. It's founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. Notice he says... He found fault with the people. There was nothing wrong with the covenant. The problem was with the people. But God found fault with the people. The time is coming, declares the Lord. Now we're quoting Jeremiah 31. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So by calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete in aging will soon disappear. So we all agree significant portions of the Torah were made obsolete. However, there's something else they almost all agreed on. There are significant portions of the Torah that are not obsolete. And I say almost all of them. There was one author who said the entire Old Testament is obsolete. And then when he went to explain it, changed his mind. (laughs) But if you asked him, did he change his mind, he said, no, I was just trying to explain what I meant. And he was called on the carpet for it. So I'm just going to say, we all agree there's significant portions of the Torah that are obsolete. And we all agree there are significant portions of the Torah that are not obsolete. For example... It's the Torah that says, honor your father and your mother. Is it not? It's the Torah that says, don't lie. It's the Torah that says, don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. It's the Torah that says, don't kidnap. And how about this? It's the Torah that says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if the Torah is obsolete, I don't have to love my neighbor as I love myself. I can put stumbling blocks in front of the blind. When I try to explain my understanding of this, maybe someday I'll write a book so I can add to the confusion. (laughs) I ask people, especially those who say, you know, the Torah is obsolete or we're no longer under the law, I say, well, is it okay to murder? And they'll say, of course not. And I'll say, why? Most people, not all, but most people say because it's against the Ten Commandments. I'll say, you're right. I think it's the Sixth Commandment. that says, thou shalt not commit murder. I said, now, the the Mount Sinai incident was roughly 1500 B.C. So, what about 1600 B.C.? Was it wrong to murder then? Well, yeah, it was. Well, then it's not wrong because it's in the Torah. It must be wrong for another reason. Because it was wrong over here, too. It was already wrong before Mount Sinai. And then when God gave Moses the 613 commandments, that came into it. But it didn't exist there. It was brought forward to it. Now, parts of the Torah are obsolete, but is it still wrong to murder? Yes, it is still wrong to murder. And so parts of the Torah go through. So in my mind, we could really say, This is the Torah, and this is the Torah, and, well, I guess, this is the Torah. You see why it gets a little confusing to say, are we still under the Torah? Because it's more complicated than that. We like it so simple, but in the scriptures, it's not always so simple. The Torah contains detailed explanation of morality, Holiness, justice, goodness, fairness, love, etc., etc., etc. The Torah, remember, I just read to you a passage that says, obsolete. The Torah is referenced throughout the New Testament. From James to Paul. Not just the Gospels, not just Jesus. In short, the body of the New Testament quotes the Torah as being active, instructive, and where applicable, necessary. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction, reproof, doctrine, training in righteousness. And when that was quote, that quote comes from the New Testament, which wasn't written yet. It's referring to the Torah. All scripture is profitable for doctrine. So the New Testament, in one sense, says it's obsolete, and in the other sense, it references it all back and forth as though it were not. Now you know. Why there's this, this, and this. Because nobody is exactly sure how to synthesize all the data. That's okay. We're working on it. I told you the Torah, in one sense, it says it's obsolete and then it's referenced throughout the New Testament as being living and active. For example, James wrote this. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. If you really keep the royal Torah, you're doing right. But if you don't, it convicts you as a lawbreaker. That sounds pretty straightforward to me. James says do that because it's in the Torah. Paul, the apostle of grace, the one I quoted to you who said, by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. The one who in Romans 7 says, we're dead to the law, says this in Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. So, what's the conclusion of the whole matter? We all agree that some of the Torah is for today and some is not. Where do we draw the line? There's no simple answer. There's no formula. It requires study. It requires work. Which is exactly what the Apostle Paul told the pastor Timothy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I said there's no easy answer not one that's fully and completely accurate but these little arrows I gave you right here when I think of all the laws of the Torah I get a big picture so the big picture is this almost all of these have to do with morality right versus wrong very few of these have to do with anything ceremonial That might be one direction to simplify things for you. No easy answer, though, but there is an easy summary, which is what I really want you to have, and it's from James. He says this, you will do well if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, that's it right there the royal law according to the Torah, love our fellow human beings as we love ourselves. That's simple enough to understand, but it's a lifetime learning to do. And so I pray that you would help us to stay focused on that and not to be distracted, not to major on the minors. Give us your Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus' love to share that love with others. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.